This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The 37 days between February 19th, 1942 and March 27th, 1942 saw a series of events that changed the history of the United States and some of our core values around religious freedom forever. February 19th, 1942 saw the issuance of Executive Order 9066 by President Franklin Roosevelt which authorized mass incarceration of Japanese Americans. In March, Public Law 503 made it illegal to disobey military orders based on Executive Order 9066. Public Proclamation No. 4, issued on March 27, 1942, made it illegal for citizens or immigrants of Japanese ancestry from leaving the West Coast. These pieces of presidential executive order and laws set in motion the forced relocation from the West Coast and Hawaii into internment camps of approximately 110,000 people of Japanese ancestry. Most were American citizens, and most were Buddhists. The upheaval of lives is still felt today, in 2019. The anniversary of Executive Order 9066 happens on February 19th, 2019, and that day sees the release of a brand new book called American Sutra, A Story of Faith and Freedom in the Second World War by Duncan Ryukin Williams. The book tells the personal stories of Japanese Buddhists interned against their will in one of the great violations of religious freedom in American history. The book is moving, engagingly written, and the product of 17 years of research into the personal lives of Buddhist priests and their families in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor, through the war, and after the war's end. American Sutra is out now from the Belknap Press at Harvard University. If you like this show, you can follow me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas or on Facebook at facebook.com slash classical ideas podcast. You can always email me at classical ideas at outlook.com. I would also be immensely grateful if you could take a moment to leave me a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Duncan Ryukin Williams. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thanks so much uh, for having me, Greg. I'm hoping that maybe you can just spend a moment introducing yourself to the audience so we can kind of get a sense of who you are and what you do. Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Duncan Dukin Williams. Uh, I'm a professor of religion and East Asian languages and culture at the University of Southern California. Uh, I also direct a research center at the university called the USC Shinso Ito Center for Japanese Religions and Culture. And I have an interest uh, in the study of Buddhism, in the study of Japanese religions, Japanese-American religions, uh, as well as 
topics that range from Buddhism and ecology to mixed race Japanese identity. Uh, so I have a number of different interests, but uh, uh, but at the heart of it, uh, I, I'm interested in the history of Buddhism. Wonderful. Uh, I'm curious about your academic journey as well. Um, whenever I was looking you up on your center's website, I noticed that you have a an undergraduate degree in religious studies as well. Why did you initially get into the field of religious studies way back as an undergrad? You know, um, I think when you're that age, uh, late teens, early 20s, uh, you're often kind of searching for yourself, uh, who you are. And, uh, and especially as I grew up, uh, in a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, my, my mom is Japanese and my dad is British, and uh, we grew up in a mixed, not only racial family but religious family, uh, a Buddhist and and my dad being British, a- Anglican Christian, and uh, so these questions about like who am I, you know, really, uh, uh, am I Buddhist? Am I Christian? Am I Japanese? Am I British? Who am I? These kind of questions, uh, to me, are the heart of the inquiry about, you know, what religious studies, and and it became a major of uh, interest to me. I think when I was a sophomore or junior, and then I started taking a lot of classes, and uh, yeah, I ended up as a religion major. A few of my recent podcast episodes have been about growing up in interfaith homes, and mm. so that is one of the fastest growing trends people that are, you know, living their childhoods kind of like you did as well. It's one of the fastest growing American trends in religion right now. Um, So I'd also know that you're a Buddhist priest in Soto Zen. Uh, When and where did you start practicing Zen? Does that go back to your childhood as well? Yeah, so uh, my my mother's uh, side of the family uh, is is a Buddhist family, and my Japanese grandfather was a very devout... uh, uh, he was a lay person, but a devout uh, uh, leader of his temple uh, in Japan. And I actually ordained in a lineage that is uh, different from my family lineage uh, in Soto Zen tradition. Uh, my my grandfather was a Nichiren Buddhist, uh, but uh, I yeah I, I as I mentioned because I had this interest in who am I uh, in in the Soto Zen tradition. Uh, uh, in Japan, the founder, uh, Zen Master Dogen, he, in, in one of his writings, he, he talks about when you study the Buddha way, uh, you study yourself. And when you study yourself, you forget yourself. And when you forget yourself, uh, you become um, uh, confirmed by the 10,000 things of the myriad things of the world. And uh, I think that idea of studying oneself uh, as a way to also let go of oneself, as a way to uh, let uh, into one's mind the relationship between oneself and the world. That kind of idea of Soto Zen uh, teaching uh, was attractive to me as a young person. And so I became uh, a lay Buddhist practitioner, not in Japan, but while I was going to, you know, I moved to, I grew up in Japan. United States when I was 17 to attend a college at, in Portland called Reed College. And uh, in Portland at that time, there was a, a Soto Zen, uh, like a Buddhist uh, temple, or uh, it was called Dharma Rain Zen Center, still is there. And I became uh, officially 
uh, a lay Buddhist uh, practitioner there. And then some years later, as you mentioned, I became a, a monk in Japan uh, at uh, a, a temple called uh, Kotakuji in uh, Matsumoto City, uh, Nagano Prefecture. And my Zen teacher there who ordained me as a priest uh, when I was 22 years old, uh, he has been my teacher ever since, and uh, that's my home temple, and uh, uh, I've done different types of training there and, and elsewhere, and uh, served as the uh, shuso, or the, uh, the training, what would one call it, the head trainee monk uh, of that temple, and, and so forth. So uh, my, my, my training and learning about Sotos and Buddhism uh, I guess uh, in a monastic way, it has been uh, centered in Japan. But uh, I've had great relationships with uh, American, you know, Zen centers and and the teachers here here as well. Fantastic! That's such a cool backstory. So, really quick, um, we are going to talk today a lot about your brand new book, American Sutra, and the subtitle is "A Story of Faith and Freedom in the Second World War." And this is such a fascinating new piece of overlooked history. And we're going to talk about the gap in the literature that you found to base this book on. But kind of to situate myself, I'm the grandson of two World War II veterans. Uh, I'm a product of the American public school system in the Midwest. So coming at this book... I came to see all of the gaps in my own knowledge that I had with regards to the importance of religion in the internment of Japanese and Japanese Americans um, following Pearl Harbor in the United States. So this new book, uh, out now from Harvard, touches on such an overlooked piece of American history, notably the importance of religion in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor that led to the internment of about 110,000 Japanese people. So... When you tell folks the gist of this book, when you were telling people what you were writing about, how did you describe the the book that you were working on? Sure, um, you know the the, the uh, what you just said about the idea that uh, the World War II Japanese American internment or incarceration as something that not everybody knows. Uh, a lot about. I think most people in high school or college have uh, at least been told that there was uh, the roundup, the forcible roundup of, of uh, over 110,000 people of Japanese ancestry, two-thirds of whom uh, were American citizens, um, and that this was a constitutionally uh, problematic uh, moment in American history. Up to there, I think people know that there's something called internment happened and that it was probably, uh, you know, these people were put in camps without due process, and uh, they didn't commit any crime, no, in prison for the duration of the war. People know, you know, some basic things like that. Uh, but what, what you talked about, what I think what's new about the book is that it, it brings to light uh, religion, faith, and uh, both in, in two respects, Greg. One, one is uh, that we tend to think about the internment as a racial problem, right? Because the uh, United States was also at war with Italy and Germany. Uh, but why were the, only the Jap- persons of Japanese ancestry targeted and uh, rounded up in this uh, mass incarceration uh, where everybody on the West Coast with even a drop of Japanese blood, even children at orphanages were rounded up? Like, 
how did that happen? And we usually say it's because of American racism, which is not incorrect in the sense of like there was uh, racial prejudice uh, that has a long prehistory to, you know, uh, from Chinese Exclusion Act to, uh, you know, the idea that Asians don't belong in America or if they belong, they're second class citizens. That idea has been known for decades, even prior to Pearl Harbor. So we know that that's true. But I think what we know less about about the whole internment is that Buddhism, the fact that over two thirds of that community were Buddhist, the major, vast majority of the community was Buddhist, and was an important factor in their internment as well. Uh, that it was not just race, but where race and religion was conflated. Uh, and that uh, that was a factor uh, in why the internment happened in the first place. So that's point one is internment uh, as viewed through the lens of religion and race. But the point two is that that same Buddhism that put them in camp was also what helped people survive it. Those difficult times when you're in a period of, you know, you, you've, you, you're dislocated, you've lost everything you've worked for, uh, you're suddenly in this uncertain circumstance in the middle of it, some interior desert or, or a swamp where you've been put behind barbed wire, what are you going to draw on when you had previously been given like a week or 10 days to gather your belongings, sell your property, etc.? You're, you, you you're able to carry one suitcase into these internment camps. And so what, what can you draw on when you've lost everything? And, and for a vast majority of these people who were Buddhist, their Buddhist faith became a resource and a spiritual refuge for them during these very difficult times. When did you notice this gap in the literature uh, connecting religion to internment in World War II? And when did you notice that it wasn't just racism, but also religion? So I think uh, I began this project uh, a little bit more than 17 years ago when I found uh, trying to help the widow of my former advisor at Harvard University, where I did my PhD, he had passed away just after I finished my dissertation, and she asked me to help clean up his office. And I was when I was in there, I, I discovered uh, these diaries that had been they were written in Japanese and had the name same family name as my advisor Nagatomi on them. So I thought they were his, but as I looked through them. I could tell the handwriting was slightly different in Japanese. And what they were were his his father's World War II diary uh, that he had written behind barbed wire in a camp called Manzanar. And because he was a Buddhist priest, he had also left some drafts of sermons he had given on Sundays inside camp at, at this what we would call barrack church. Uh, it was inside one of these barracks. Uh, and so uh, that's when I began this book project. So it has taken over 17 years from conception to completion. Uh, but, but the diary I translated then and the sermons I translated at that time for the family uh, led to other families contacting me about a diary that their father or grandfather had left as a Buddhist priest in these camps. And so 
I began translating these things from Japanese into English and recognized or started to read up on everything that's ever been written on the Japanese-American internment and noticed notice that very few people referred to religion, whether Buddhist or Christian, uh, and the role of faith in sustaining the lies of people in the camp. There's a lot of research about you know, what did the government do? How did the executive order that President Roosevelt issued uh, come into being? How did uh, uh, the war relocation authority round people up? And But it was always a view from the outside in, you know, mm-hmm. and, and less about what the story of that internment meant from the people who were detained, uh, the story from the inside out. And especially these Buddhist priests were kind of written out of, of the narrative. And so it, 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 I wanted to honor my teacher, but also, you know, do something as a scholar that I could do, which was translate these diaries uh, and get a little bit of a view into the interior perspective of how people handle those difficult times. I talk to a lot of historians and scholars on this show, and so oftentimes I picture people in like dark and dank archives in some uh-huh. basement around the world, but it sounds like your research process was much more personal and like building relationships with people who reached out to you. Do you think that this research process was different than other works of history that you've seen and worked on? Sure. You know, I, I've always thought about doing historical work, whether it's on religion or anything else, as, as needing to have multiple perspectives. You know, I, I wrote a book about Zen in Japan during the uh, early modern period, where I tried to, uh, with that project, look at religion from what did the government think? What did the Buddhist priests think? What did the average layperson think? And kind of triangulating the story from multiple perspectives. And in this book, American Sutra, what I tried to do was I tried to I did spend quite a few years in the archives at the National Archives, uh, looking at FBI, Office of Naval Intelligence, Army G2, like government documents about what they thought about Buddhism. But I wanted to counterbalance that with, as you just said, uh, stories from. The internees themselves. I managed to interview. Uh, they were already in their, you know, eighty, late eighties, early nineties uh, when I interviewed them back seventeen years ago. Uh, starting at that time, they were already quite elderly. But trying to capture their memories on uh, tape, uh, talking to them, them introducing me to yet another person, yet another person. It was a kind of a, a developing a network, as you said, of 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 people in the Japanese-American community whose stories hadn't been told before. Uh, I wanted to capture those oral histories and tell stories from that perspective, as well as contemporaneous accounts. Because sometimes people's memories, when you do historical work, when it's years later, uh, they, they can't remember certain things. You know, uh, so you want to counterbalance that with contemporaneous records. So if there were diaries, correspondence, uh, other things that, photographs from that time, I, what I tried to do was put all that, triangulate all of that uh, into the storytelling for this book. Nice. So you're an educator. I'm an educator. I'm a high school educator. You're a college educator. 
How do you think that teachers can incorporate a more specific and uh, focused story for teaching young students in like high school about this so that we can teach it accurately and more fully moving forward in the future of American education so we don't miss out on the Buddhism aspect? Do you have any teaching suggestions? Sure. I always feel like, you know, with younger people, uh, they will listen to you if they can connect to the story. Right. Yeah. And so sometimes uh, when I'm talking to younger people, uh, instead of talking about the Buddhist priests who are a little bit, you know, older and I, they, they probably won't identify with so much. I t- sometimes tell the story of uh, people who are more their age, you know, uh, teenagers, uh, sometimes the sons and daughters of Buddhist priests who uh, had their own experiences of going to camp. And I try to ask them to imagine as if they were in that situation where suddenly the government announces that your family is subject to uh, being, you know, evicted from your home and that uh, you have between a week and 10 days uh, to pack up everything into one suitcase. And I often ask young people like, what would you put in that suitcase if you knew that you have to you're not going to be able to come back to your home for who knows how long this war is going to last. And you're going to go to some remote camp with, you know, guards with guns and barbed wire. And what are you going to put in that suitcase? And I think that makes people feel the experiences that the, these young people back in 1942 felt uh, uh, as you know, just a regular teenager, what do you do uh, to try to deal with that kind of a sudden situation? Yeah, I think about that a lot as well, especially because, you know, I taught uh, night as well with my 10th grade English classes. And there are scenes in night that reminded me so much of your book. Like in, in night, one of the uh, quotes is like the town seemed deserted, but behind the shutters, our friends were probably waiting for the moment when they could loot our homes And then I'm reading your book last night, and in chapter 5 it says, The citizens of Turlock, who live on either sides of the street, stare at us curiously as we walk by. And then the next page it says, um, I wonder if Japan had confined American non-combatants in horse stalls. And so, you know, this was happening all over the world at the same time. Is one of the lessons that we are all capable of this kinds of darkness as well? Yeah, you know, so although this story is set in America, uh, the conflation of things like race, religion, and national identity, you know, obviously happened in Japan, obviously happened in Nazi Germany, uh, that, 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 that the governments and, 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 and politicians uh, sometimes came up with these ideas that certain people, uh, especially at a time of war or national emergency, uh, are a threat to uh, an idea where only one people or only one religion uh, uh, is deemed fully acceptable or deemed uh, associated with that nation's identity, and, and that uh, you had different, you know, extremes of exclusion, different extremes of of. Uh, ways in which people who didn't fit that kind of idea of 
a, a, a monolithic or a singular identity for a nation at a time of war uh, were treated. And so uh, in the kind of global sense, uh, the Japanese-American incarceration experience, uh, you know, is, 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 is along the spectrum of, of different type of actions that different governments took. And I think it, it becomes an issue, of course, in the United States only because, you know, uh, this wasn't just about enemy combatants or prisoners of war, but this is about, you know, two thirds of that group were American citizens who, you know, usually in American constitutional law, you're supposed to, you know, have a trial, you're supposed to have committed a crime, imprisoned. Uh, so a lot of different or, you know, Freedom of religion, another constitutional, you know, uh, ideal and promise, uh, is that we don't discriminate uh, based on people's uh, uh, faith tradition uh, in terms of like just putting them away as a group because you suspect that religion or that group of people who affiliate with that religion as being un-American or even, you know, subversive or anti-american so so those are those that there is a global background but but also an american context in which all this happened yeah so you begin the book with a poem that you've named the book after and the poem is called thus have i heard an american sutra written in 1942 by a buddhist priest named yogan senzaki do you have the book with you i let, give me one second. Here. Okay, I, I I I have it. Yeah. Okay, I, I I have the electronic version of it right here. Yeah, I'm wondering if you can do a reading of the poem that opens the book for us. Sure. Um, so this poem by the Rinzai Zen Buddhist priest uh, Yogen Senzaki, who hold, who had a uh, Zen Buddhist community. Uh, not just of Japanese uh, uh, persons, but of of many different ethnic uh, and racial backgrounds in Los Angeles prior to uh, being uh, moved to a, uh, a series of camps, internment camps. Uh, he writes this poem uh, just as, as uh, in the spring of 1942, where he's about to be taken away uh, by the U.S. Army uh, along with the rest of the Japanese American community, and so he uh, writes a poem, uh, in some sense con commemorating that moment. And so let me read that. Thus have I heard. The army ordered all Japanese faces to be evacuated from the city of Los Angeles. This homeless monk has nothing but a Japanese face. He stayed here 13 springs, meditating with all faces from all parts of the world and studied the teaching of Buddha with them. Wherever he goes, he may form other groups, inviting friends of all faces, beckoning them with the empty hands of Zen. May 7th, 1942. I love that. So... Senzaki seems to be like a thread throughout the book. His name pops up again and again. Uh, why is he such a compelling figure to you? Well, just that first line from the poem, thus have I heard. It's the first line 
of a classical Buddhist scripture. It's uh, uh, often uh, used as a kind of preamble to any kind of discourse by the Buddha, a sermon by the Buddha, uh, as recorded and heard by one of his disciples, Ananda. And so, uh, you know, he writes this poem about being, he calls it, evacuated from the city of Los Angeles, and he's going to go to some kind of camp, and he's going to continue to uh, offer Buddhism. He calls it, you know, inviting friends of all faces, beckoning them with the empty hands of Zen. He's going to continue to try to, you know, be a Buddhist person, despite, you know, this forced removal and incarceration. He's going to continue to do so. And he starts it as if it were a Buddhist scripture. Mm. And so, to me, he's a very interesting person. There are many, many stories in this book, American Sutra, it's where, you know, the actual lives of the lived experiences and lives of people who are finding liberation in the midst of incarceration, that's a really key part of the book. But his poem, in a way, the reason he's so, he, he begins the book and a poem of his ends the book because and so, and he, and as you said, he, he he appears periodically in the book because, uh, in a way, he's the he he captured in poetry what I think people actually lived, which was to see their experience of dislocation. Right? They were originally immigrants and children of immigrants, so they know about what dislocation is moving from one place to another of course this time it's a not voluntary right they're forced to move mm -hmm. but in those moments of dislocation when you're when you're a migrant you need something to orient yourself right yeah what's north what's what's up what's down like how are you going to negotiate and orient your life and for him he's saying let's continue our buddhist community let's continue our Buddhist practice. Let's continue our faith in the Buddha. And he's going as far as to say, let's view it as if it were a sacred, not only like practice, but a teaching that our lives itself can be a teaching perhaps to others as well. Uh, that's what uh, putting that experience in the form of a Buddhist scripture suggested to me so i start with that poem but you're right he, he comes up a lot because he 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 has fantastic poetry from within those camps and then he also uh continues to write after uh he gets released but uh uh he's a very compelling figure because he not only reflects what the japanese american community's experience is but because he was one of these people that was also even before the war but also and, and also afterwards open to the larger American, non-Japanese American public in terms of sharing the Buddhist teaching, I feel he kind of represents this very important figure in, in some sense, the creation of American Buddhism in the crucible of war. How did you find him whenever you were doing your archival research? How did you find his work? Uh, well, he, he uh, is a fairly well-known uh, figure in... American Buddhist uh, history because he, uh, precisely because he did have non-Japanese uh, 
uh, students mm-hmm. even before the war. And so alongside, you know, uh, D.T. Suzuki and uh, other people from before the war who were opening up the Buddhist teachings to to people beyond their ethnic community. Uh, he's one of those people. And so uh, uh, there have been some books published uh, with his writings in them uh, and some other people who've done important scholarly work on his uh, legacy. And so uh, he's not a completely unknown figure. Most of the book, I try to bring to light people who, you know, have 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 existed, uh, you know, in, in in silence or in a way that uh, uh, I wanted to bring their stories out into the open. Jürgen Sinzaki has been at least slightly acknowledged uh, in both, uh, uh, I would call it, some uh, scholarship on American Buddhism, but also uh, among Zen practitioners, he's a he, he's a uh, kind of pioneering figure. The everyday stories that you talk about in the book, especially of farmers in California uh, who attend places like the Madeira Buddhist Temple, the Fresno Buddhist Temple, and all their farms that were confiscated um, throughout the war. I'm curious if you were able to go to any of the places that you refer to in the book. Uh, and if so, like, did you find yourself thinking what did you find yourself thinking about and feeling standing in the spots where all this history occurred? Like, did you go to any of these places? Absolutely. I, I, I've been to all of the 10 war relocation authority camps. Uh, uh, the big ones are like Manzanar in California or Heart Mountain in Wyoming. Uh, many of these places now uh, have interpretive centers. They're part of National Park Service uh, uh, regions with park rangers that uh, can tell the story of these places. And often uh, they have a cemetery or a monument uh, that uh, it centers the remembrance of those places. And so uh, I've, I wanted to visit these camps uh, where they were. Uh, the ones in, for example, Arkansas today is just uh, fields of cotton. Uh, I had never seen fields of cotton in my life before. Uh, I went uh, to Jerome and Rower, Arkansas, uh, but there's a a cemetery there. And I think when you have a chance to visit these places, the first impression I think one generally gets is just how remote uh, these places are from uh, cities and towns and how it must have felt for people who lived in, say, San Francisco or Seattle or Los Angeles, like city people, uh, to suddenly end up in these kind of places, even like farmers, it's one thing if you're on a farm uh, and you're growing vegetables. And so on. These places are in the middle of a desert where it looks like nothing will grow, where the winds uh, blow up these dust storms, where uh, it just seems like an inhospitable location and so I always re- imagine what it felt like for these people to have been transported there by train and bus uh, uh, for several days and you end up seeing these you know guard towers and barbed wire and you're in this desolate place and because I visit these places with the goal of uh, feeling something of 
connecting to its history of place uh, and seeing especially these cemeteries um, where you know like that first winter the you know the uh, the barracks are probably you know not well built is hot in the day cold at night people passed away the young the babies the, the elderly and so they're buried there and their their memories are there and so i feel like i i feel that history uh needing to be told and 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 so whenever i visit these places i i try to recall and think about what it must have been like for the people I write about to have gone there. Uh, you know, these days you can get there pretty easily and you fly close by, you know, and take a, rent a car. And, but these people had to go through a different kind of journey uh, to get to these uh, remote locations. And uh, so, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's definitely worth going if, if one has a chance. I'm a, uh, I comment sometimes on a, a Zen Facebook group and I added something, a comment the other day that referred to this book, and a woman started commenting back to me saying that her father was interned during the war and that he was actually in the camp that you just referred to in Arkansas, and this interaction was yesterday. I see. So there's a lot of people out there who are still connected to these stories. This is not some far-off, distant past thing. People still carry this with them every day, don't they? That's right. And, you know, the 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 difficulties of that time kind of resonates not only through intergenerationally families, but it kind of continues to resonate, right? Like, so if you were told you don't belong, you know, whether it's because of your religion, Buddhism, or your, your race being Asian American, and you're told you don't belong in America, well, what does that do? when you come out. So, yes, there were the war years of incarceration. But in many ways, many families didn't tell, you know, especially the elder members of the family, didn't want to burden their kids with the difficulties and hardships of that time. Or even, not just that time, but when they got out of camp, what did they get? They got uh, 25 to $50 cash and, and a one-way train ticket, mm-hmm. right? You've lost everything you worked for before the war. You're in these camps, and then you've got this to kind of somehow get you back to California, Oregon, wherever, Washington State, and you're trying to rebuild your life. So there's a difficulty in the post-war years as well as you try to try to fit back into America, right? And so in that process... Because you've been told by your government that your religion and your uh, race is, you know, suspect, it's, it's, it's an, like, you know, attached to the enemy. And, and, and as people go back, a lot of people in those communities don't welcome the Japanese Americans coming back. So, the tr- in a way, the trauma of that incarceration experience, you know, carries on. Uh, where people feel like maybe they shouldn't, you know, speak Japanese or maybe they shouldn't eat Japanese food or maybe they shouldn't uh, continue to be Buddhist. Maybe they should, you know. So uh, it, 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 uh, it's, I think, only in recent years 
that uh, uh, number one, people have been telling those stories, speaking up, seeking redress, uh, as well as uh, going in groups. Uh, you mentioned the Arkansas camps is going to be a pilgrimage there in April, mm. uh, but but that kind of idea of not not exactly a religious pilgrimage in the classical sense, but having these kind of annual uh, reunions and annual trips of not only family members who experienced uh, that time and now, you know, we're like one, two, even three generations away from the people who lived there uh, in these camps in World War II, but uh, other people, people who don't have any family background connecting them to these camps, but still seeing the importance of making these trips and and recalling history. Uh, that's something that still goes on. So the book really does uh, mention often that Buddhism was viewed as sort of like an un-American enemy. But today we live in a time in which American people run off to Japan to live in Zen monasteries and do rigorous Zen training all the time. I've had people like that on this show, born and raised American who go off to Japan. And... Do you know kind of like what the timeline was post-war when Buddhism started being worthy of being seen as quote-unquote American by people in the U.S.? Were there any like acceptance moments along the way? So I think, you know, the, the, the persi- number one, the persistence of people who despite being told they don't belong, the, the persistence of these people in not only the war period, but during the 50s and into the 60s and so forth, that was critical to uh, connecting Buddhism with, let's call it the countercultural movement, people like Gary Snyder, Philip Witt, like the beat poets and so forth, that began, began to get interested in Buddhism in general, as well as Japanese forms of Buddhism in particular. Uh, Gary Snyder has often talked about, uh, you know, interacting with the Imamura family, as being the, you know, catalyst to his interest in Buddhism and his interest in going to Japan and his interest in becoming a Zen monk uh, in, in Japan. And the Imamura family, of course, was, you know, uh, the grandfather was the bishop of the uh, Jodo Shinshu Buddhist temple in, in Hawaii. The son uh, was at the Berkeley Buddhist temple, which is where uh, Gary met him. So, you know, there's these moments where you find these interactions between the Japanese-American community uh, in San Francisco in the Zen tradition, the traditional immigrant temple, Sokoji, uh, where Suzuki Shundu, the uh, founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, uh, was the abbot. He connected the Japanese-American community with uh, these uh, new uh, converts to Buddhism. In Los Angeles, the similar Japanese, historically Japanese-American uh, uh, Zen temple, Zenshuji, where Maizumi uh, Hakun Roshi was the was the abbot, he started uh, serving people beyond the Japanese American community and founded the Zen Center of Los Angeles, another important hub uh, for kind of spreading. So, so there are these kind of moments after the war, where the community found itself interacting. You know, the fact that they continued to be Buddhist during those all those hard years, and uh, meeting with this kind of questioning moment in American life about 
you know, what it means to be American, what it, you know, so then the Vietnam War period, like a wholesale questioning of like uh, what had been accepted uh, givens in American norms around religion and uh, other kinds of, uh, 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 you know, sexual behavior and uh, drug, like the things that get tend to get associated with the counterculture. Uh, Buddhism began to be a, a serious uh option for people to to examine and uh these japanese american temples uh were an important part of of uh bringing that buddhism uh to people and then also making those connections with people going uh to asia to japan and elsewhere so these these folks that got interned during the war the 110 plus thousand people they were spread all over the country to these different camps I'm curious if that changed the long-term um, Japanese distribution of population in American cities. Like, do we have new Japanese populations um, that settle in different parts of the country? Like, what effects are we seeing from this distribution to this day? So one, one thing is that uh, around 1944, people were starting to be able to get out of camp. Uh, uh, if they had work or uh, call, like if you were at UC Berkeley or UC, like, and 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 you were one semester away from finishing, and you could find a college east of the Rocky Mountains to accept you, you were able to get out of camp to try to finish your degree, right? And so people ended up in different parts of America that way. People ended up in different parts of America for work reasons, um, and the biggest center for that was uh, places like Chicago. Uh, Denver was uh, considered a so-called free zone. Hmm. And so people ended up in, 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 in places like Denver. Um, uh, some people in New York, so the New York Buddhist uh, uh, temple up, up on Riverside, that, that also grew during that period when people uh, towards the end of World War II started moving to New York. And so... Uh, you do find a, a dispersion of the Japanese American population. Uh, but that said, you know, people had their original homes before the war in on the West Coast. And so most people did ultimately return, uh, which is in a big contrast with Canada. In Canada, the government, the Canadian government, prohibited the Japanese from moving back to the Pacific Coast area, area uh, until 1946. So this is after the war is already all over. Uh, they were like, okay, maybe some of you can go back. And so in Canada, the Japanese Canadian community became really spread out. And one of the big consequences of that is that uh, once you start not having concentrations of Japanese Americans in Japan towns and that kind of thing, people started outmarrying more. And today, uh, over 90% of Japanese Canadians are of mixed race, hmm. right? Whereas in the United States, there are 1.3 million Japanese Americans, according to the last U.S. Census 2010. And what we'll find, I've been doing some research on this in 2020, is that Japanese Americans would be the first Asian American group to be majority, over 50%, multiracial. Uh, so that's one kind of consequence of internment and kind of spreading out beyond the west coast even in america it's not as high as canada which is like 90 percent 
but that's one kind of consequence. And then the other consequence is that uh, uh, Japanese-American Japan towns disappeared. There used to be 10 big ones on the West Coast. Now there's a small one in San Jose, small one uh, in uh, San Francisco, and a little bit larger one in Los Angeles, and that's it. So, uh, so that, 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 that kind of like uh, dispersion also meant the dilution of Japanese-American life in, 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 in the Pacific uh, Coast as well. So in the United States, we talk a lot about the freedom of religion, free speech, constitutional protection. What do you wish that every person who values these American values, what do you wish they knew about the conditions inside Japanese internment camps that you write about the book? Like, what can we still learn from this today when we think about freedom in the Constitution? Well, uh, I was mentioning a moment ago about the being able to get out of camp. And one of the things that they had to fill out was something called loyalty questionnaire, where the government uh, was trying to gauge if you were, you know, loyal to the United States or not. And one of the questions was around religion. Uh, and if you answered Christian, you got plus points on your mm-hmm. test, right? If you answered Buddhist, you got minus points on your test. And if mm-hmm. you answered Shinto, you actually were banned from leave clearance. Um, and so it's clear that the government had a point of view that said, you know, being American and being Christian are like equated, right? Mm-hmm. This is in a very clear sense, not what the constitution promises. Uh, in martial law, Hawaii, you know, in a way, because the constitution was, uh, put aside under martial law, the martial law uh, government in Hawaii said uh, quite openly that the policy of the United States was that no no religion other than Christian was to be encouraged on the islands during the war. And so they actually just shut down the Buddhist and Shinto uh, uh, temples and shrines and promoted Americanization by Christianization uh, on the islands. So when we talk about religious freedom, uh, the World War II Japanese-American case, I think, shows us what happens when, you know, the United States government ignores its own constitution, not only on the due process question of do you, can you just imprison people without them being guilty of anything, but also, you know, on the religious freedom question. Uh, can a government actually go around uh, encouraging and promoting one religion over another? Uh, I think that the lesson here, though, is that whatever the government was doing, the fact that these people, the majority of the community was Buddhist, and they persisted in that despite being told, you don't belong, this is not uh, part of being American, they, they claimed, no, we can be both 100% American and 100% Buddhist, right? And I guess, you know, to go directly to your question, what I would say is constitutional guarantees of free speech, freedom of religion, so on, they are just words on a piece of paper unless people embody those ideas in 
in their lives, even in the most difficult of circumstances. That's how the Constitution and the American promise of religious freedom, American ideals get realized or manifest is when people actually embody them. And to me, that's what the story that I try to tell in American Sutra is all about. It's these people who, in the most difficult of circumstances, were like, we actually are going to risk everything to uh, show our commitment to these American ideals and promises. And we're going to do that in camp, but also there's a group of them that served in the most highly decorated unit of World War II, the 100th and 442nd Regimental Combat Team in Europe, as well as 6,000 who served in the military intelligence service in the Pacific that MacArthur, General MacArthur's office claimed shortened the Pacific War by two years because of their important ling linguist work of uh, code-breaking and interrogating prisoners, translating documents. Th these people who were suspect suddenly became one of the most important contributors to the American cause, and, and uh, uh, they were called the Purple Heart Battalion in Europe, the 100th Battalion, because of just how many people died in that effort. So they bought their Americanness by, uh, you know, giving up their lives. And so to me, that's an important part of this story, is whether it's in camp or on the battlefield, these people were saying, we can be 100% American and 100% Buddhist, and uh, uh, that's what it takes sometimes to enact these ideals of religious freedom and other constitutional uh, ideals. They're delicate and cannot be taken for granted. Very, very important words. So if listeners want to know more about your work, um, is there a place where they can find you online? Sure. The easiest thing is just to go to www.americansutra.com. Uh, it has, uh, you know, uh, book reviews, excerpts. Uh, uh, there'll be some videos going up there soon. Uh, but it's, it's, the, it's, it's the one place that's uh, uh, dedicated uh, for this new book called American Sutra. Dr. Duncan Williams, this has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I just enjoyed this last hour so much. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, wonderful chatting with you. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com, or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.